Morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. And our text today is the 35th verse. Hebrews 10.35. It's the last Sunday of 2023, the last day of the year. And uh, God has been good to us. God has preserved us through times that were joyful and through times that may have been painful. Uh, If you've lived for any length of time, you know that all days are not equal. Every hour is not the same. There are sorrows that weigh us down and then there are joys that lift us up. And when promises have been made and we're waiting for it, as time passes, our resolve to look forward to those promises can fade. And so as the year closes, I hope and my desire today is to renew and recharge your desire to confidently and eagerly please God so that you would receive his promised reward. He has made a promise to us. We'll look at what that promise is, and we will renew our perseverance toward waiting patiently for God's promise. So to that end, let me pray for us and let's begin. Father, I pray that you would grant us every grace that our minds would be illuminated by your word, and my mouth would speak your word, and our hearts would delight in your promise and our souls would be confident in your promise-keeping ability. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hebrews 10.35, this is what the Holy Spirit says to us. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. That verse is readily divisible into two parts, and those are the two parts of our sermon. The first part is the promise, the great reward. That's easy. God has made us a promise. There's a great reward. And the second part is the application, or how do you appropriate that promise? It's the path that you must stay on to receive that reward. And we will talk about those two pieces, what the promise is and how must you stay on the path. That is, do not throw away your confidence. First, we'll deal with the promise and may God lift our hearts up to rejoice in the promise that God has given us and then we'll talk about the path so that we would stay on course. The great reward of our, that is promised to us, what is that reward? Why is it great? Or how great is it? I'll show you four aspects about this reward this morning. The first aspect is abiding. This reward is something that's abiding. It, the, the promise is not, there, there are many promises in the Bible, but this particular promise in Hebrews is the promise of a land, an abiding land a better possession and an abiding one. Look at verse 34. The last bit there. 
Not only does the gospel of Jesus promise us the preservation of our souls, as we can see in verse 39, but it also promises a land. The land that the saints have always looked forward to. And you can see that in chapter 11, verses 13 through 16. In, in those verses, the Bible says, and, st- and Hebrews chapter 11, the heroes of the faith, 13 through 16, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they're seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. Think about that. The promise of a heavenly country, a city. So there are five things I want you to look at from this passage so we can see how what this abiding land is, this abiding promise. First, those to whom the promise was made did not receive the promise. They only greeted it from afar. They looked at it. They waved at it. They never got to receive it. Second, they lived as strangers and exiles on earth, on that land, not merely the country they were in. They just planet earth. How do I say that? The words that this passage says, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one, not one on earth. It was not just the land in front of them, not the land that they were on. Third, they were not seeking a status or eternal life alone. Sometimes as Christians, we think that our promise is just to live forever, but it's to live forever with someone somewhere. And that's, that's the homeland that they're looking for. A place that they could call their own, their home. Fourth, that homeland had nothing to do with their ethnic origin or geographic origin. Because if they could have, if they were seeking for a homeland and they couldn't find it, they could always go back. They did not. Finally, they desired a better country. I mean, we live in a time and a place where every nation, every people are looking for a better country. Every person on the planet is talking about how to make their country a better country. The patriarchs in the Bible longed for that place. And that place is in heaven. It's a heavenly place prepared by God himself for us. That's the kind of place that they were seeking for. And because it is a God-prepared heavenly country, it is better and abiding, is what the Bible tells us in 10 verse 34. Now, it would be exciting for us to talk more about the details of this country. What does living in this country look like? What is the governance of this country? What, 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 
is it that's so appealing? Why, why is there peace in this country? Why are the citizens happy? And that would be a good diversion, but I'm not going to do that today. But your desire to know more about that country is not misplaced because you were prepared by God to long for a homeland. That desire is in every single person. And that brings us to our second aspect, that this promise is not just abiding, but this promise is ancient. Who was the first person to receive the promise of a land? Abraham? Yeah. He was promised a land. And from Abraham, the promise went to his son Isaac, from his son Isaac to his son Jacob, and from them from, to his sons, the patriarchs. And in Exodus, Moses leads the people to the promised land. But Abraham was not the first person to seek a homeland. When God prepared or created man, he prepared a place for him as well, and he placed him in a garden, a land. But man sinned, and he was put out of that land. And ever since, man has been seeking for a homeland. And we see in Genesis 10, people decided, hey, let's not scatter. We want a place of our own. Let's build this tower. Let's live together. Let's live here. This ancient desire also is, tells us something about this promise. It's an ancient promise. God gave it to Abraham, but it's something that was desirable because people always look for a homeland. We were created that way. We were created to look and long for a place, a special place. And that promise that God has made is great because it kind of helps us. That it's alluring. This promise is alluring because that desire for a land is touched upon. But if this promise is ancient, is it still active? Yes, it is. And that's the third aspect. Is it still available to us? Is this promise active? How can it be active if Moses and Joshua led the people to whom the land was promised into the land? We've read the book of Joshua. We've read Exodus. The land that was promised, they conquered and they received it as their own possession. They lived in that land. They had kings and they built cities in that land. However, that promise still remains. King David, when he was in the land, he penned a psalm, Psalm 95, one of the many psalms that he wrote and sang. In Psalm 95, Verses 7 through 11, here's what David writes. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he looks back at the rebellion that took place in the wilderness, Numbers 14 and 20, and then he writes these words. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
verses from a psalm. When they're in the promised land with a king. But those words that the Holy Spirit inspired, the Holy Spirit used again in Hebrews. Now this author who writes this letter to us, by the Holy Spirit tells us, wow, there's something more about that promise of the land that's active for us today. And that's in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11 again. The author of Hebrews says that this promise is still active. He quotes it there, and in chapter 4, 8 to 10, he says, If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Referring to David, who came later. And then he concludes, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Look at verse 9 there. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The promise still remains. The promise is still active. God's promise of a Sabbath rest, a better country, a better and abiding possession has not expired. This promise is active. And that is why we look forward to it. We long for it. Year after year, we wait for the promise to be fulfilled. Now we've seen that this promise is abiding and it's ancient and it's active. But there is a fourth and very important aspect of this promise. It's astonishing. I don't mean that we are astonished by the fact that God has made us a promise. What's astonishing is how people who believed in God's promise, held to God's promise, looked forward to God's promise, what's astonishing is how they live their lives. That's astonishing. What, what do they do? Does the fact that God promised a land that he has prepared for us make us long to look forward to it? How do we order our lives? So we're careful people. Before we purchase something, we look for reviews. We look for referrals. Uh, any service, any goods that we're about to purchase, we're very careful about it. So uh, when God makes promises to us, he tells us about it. And people who've lived, looking forward to that promise, they've lived in such a way, those are our referrals. We look at them and see that promise is true. So let's look at how people lived longing for God's promise. In two places. First, we'll look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 35. It's just the section where our passage for today is. Verse 32 onwards. But recall the former days. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. 
Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. It's talking about the Christians to whom this letter was written. Four behaviors about these people are astonishing. These people who had confidence that they had a better and abiding possession. What did they do? First, they endured a hard struggle with suffering. Now, that's not ordinary suffering. It's not the struggles because just because they live in a fallen world. This is hostility because they were Christian. They endured that because they had a promise. The second thing that we see here is that they were exposed to public reproach and affliction. They were not merely unfriended or unfollowed or unwhatever any of these social media stuff has today. That's not what we're talking about. And we may think that's the worst thing that could happen, but that's not the case. They lived in a very social, by that I mean a real society, not living in the modern ultra-individualistic society. They lived in a society where people mattered and what people thought about you mattered. You lived among people who are the ones who provide you with grain or bread, and, and if they don't like you, you don't get any. You can't trade with them. You can't live among them. There's no safety for you. They lived among such people, and they suffered reproach there. They were outcasts of the society. The third thing that we can notice about them is their society were other outcasts. They partnered with those who were so treated. Their entire society was made of just fellow outcasts who were not loved by people that they lived around, who were hated by them. But they had compassion for those in prison. That was their society. Their friends were in prison. Not because they were criminals, but because they longed for an abiding land. They longed for Jesus to come and make his promise whole that he's prepared a room for us. And the fourth thing was, they did not mind the government taking away their property. That's all you have. That's home, right? Your land, your farm, your livelihood. And if they went and met with those Christians in prison, they were basically saying, I'm a criminal too. And when they returned, they didn't have a home to go to. If they visited a brother or a sister in prison, they were confident that they would remain there. And they joyfully accepted the plundering of their possessions because they knew that they had a better and an abiding possession. They accepted that outcome joyfully. The second passage that shows us the astonishing behavior of those who long for the promise is the next chapter, chapter 11. The heroes of the faith, we can talk about every one of these, but I'd like us to look at the second half of verse 35 to verse 37. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. Think about that. What reward 
What promise is worth all of that? That's astonishing. They saw the promise. They heard the promise. They lived such that a promise was true and their lives did not matter in comparison with what God promised. They were not afraid of torture. They refused to be released from prison if they would recant, if they would say, I don't believe in Jesus, they could go free. If they thought their possessions were worth anything, they could go free. But they longed and they looked forward to that abiding possession. They were mocked and flogged. They were sawn in half. That is just astonishing. How could someone go through that if they did not believe that that promise was real? That's faith. Don't let that pass you by. They were so enthralled by the promise of God, but more than that, they were so confident of God's ability to keep His promise that by the grace of God, they offered themselves up so that they could receive that promise. There is no invention of man, no holiday destination, no work of art, no service in the hospitality industry that can compare to this. It's just impossible. Anything on anyone's bucket list does not match. This is God's promise. It's a great reward. Those who have believed God's word have demonstrated to our astonishment that God's promise is worth more than anything else they possessed in this world, including their lives. Therefore, let us confidently, gladly, and eagerly seek God's reward. How do we do that? How do we do that? How do we demonstrate faith and confidence in God's word? That's, that's our second part, the, the path. Do not throw away your confidence. Some have called this path to the promise a pilgrimage to the promised land. I like that metaphor. We, we, we live as pilgrims on this earth. We're strangers. We're exiles here. This place is not our home. This land is not our home. It is for now. It's temporary. But we long for a heavenly city. Whatever be your age, know that God's promise is true and is available to anyone who would believe him, who would believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. If you have not believed that promise, if you have not known Jesus, then anything that I say about how do you get there does not matter. You got to believe in Jesus. If you don't know him, then I invite you to get to know him. Talk to somebody after the service, maybe someone who invited you here, or talk to those who served and prayed, or talk to me, I'd be happy to talk to you. But how do you, how do you make that promise yours? But the path to the promise, that's for those who have put their confidence. It's for those so that you don't waver, you don't throw away your confidence. So if you don't have confidence, I'd like to pray with you. And we could pray after service. Now to those 
who have believed in God's promise. I'm speaking to you now. What should we do to not throw away our promise? How should you live your pilgrim life here on earth? There's a threefold posture you need to maintain. That's talked about at least in this letter. The first posture is that of patience. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12 tells us this. And we desire each one of you to show the same eagerness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In order to inherit the promise, you need faith and patience. So you got to believe and then you got to be patient. What does patience look like? The next few verses, 13 through 15. When God made a promise to Abraham, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So the example we're given is that of Abraham and his patience. We're not told how long he was patient. But we're told that he was patient. So we're not given a timeline. The church has been a patient people for 2,000 years. We're waiting, looking from afar, greeting it, and then going and being with the Lord, receiving that promise. But what does it mean to wait patiently? What does that look like? Consider a farmer, like in James chapter 5, verse 7. A farmer who patiently waits for fruit to appear. Now, I know America has great farming, a lot of farmland. But when I see farming here, I'm like, wow, this is so modern. It's so high tech. That's not the kind of farming necessarily that James is talking about. It's the kind of farming in rural India. No heavy equipments, no machinery, not even prediction of weather. The farmer goes out, he sows, he hopes there would be rain, he waits patiently, will there be a crop? That kind of patience, old school patience. That's the kind of patience that God is calling us to have. It involves a complete loss of control. Think about that. We live in a time and age where we do not know what it means to not have control. We like to control everything. Control where we live, how long we live, how, who are our, what our surrounding looks like, our neighborhood, the trees, the length of grass, everything is controlled. And for good reason, probably. But patience, that's a loss of control. And it, it means utter dependence and trust in God. And that is what God is calling you to. As you live the life of a pilgrim waiting for God's promise, you wait patiently. You don't know for how long. You don't know what it would look like between now and receiving the promise. But you wait. But the second posture of a pilgrim is that of perseverance. Verse 36 of chapter 10 says, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Endurance, perseverance. 
This verse is the reason for our verse, for verse 35. You need to endure so that you can receive the great reward that you are promised. We're also exhorted to run the endure, with endurance the race that is set before us in chapter 12, verse 1. Perseverance is the opposite of patience. Right, we'll talk about that in a minute. But the example if we were given for patience was Abraham. The example of perseverance we're given is Jesus in chapter 12, verse 2. He despised the shame of the cross, endured it, and received the reward. His reward was to sit at the right hand of the Father. We're exhorted to consider him in verse 3. Why consider Jesus? Because we are sons. That's chapter 12, verse 7. Because we are sons. Sons are disciplined. Sons are expected to be faithful. And early in the book, in chapter 3, Jesus is called the faithful son. Because he was obedient, he received his reward. He went through the sorrow joyfully. He endured the shame of the cross. And then he's seated at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of the majesty. He received his reward. Now it's our turn. We too are sons. We too, like Jesus, are called to persevere so that we too would receive our reward. But perseverance is hard. If patience is loss of control, perseverance is doing what everyone is telling you is not worth doing. Perseverance is like being a farmer who is waiting for the crop despite a drought, despite pestilence, saying, nope, I will go out there and I will continue farming. It is continuing to do what you're told to do, or the book says, here's what you must do, despite contrary indicators. Everything is telling you, don't do that. Your circumstances say it's not worth it, and you still do it. You despise the shame, and you do it. They're exact opposites in a sense. But we need to dig deeper. Not all kind of perseverance is worth it. Some of it is called being just plain stubborn. There's a kind of perseverance that a pilgrim needs to have, and that's the third posture that he needs to have. We are charged to pay attention to Jesus so that we receive the unshakable kingdom. Chapter 12, verse 27. So our endurance, our perseverance has two sides. First, we are not to be world-centered. And the second, we ought, we ought not to run away from God, but rather in fear and trembling, we offer acceptable sacrifice to God in worship. That's what verse 28 says. What's that imagery? The author is going back to when God appeared on the mount in Exodus. And all the Israelites who were there, they were afraid. There was thunder and quaking and it was a sight. 
And they, were, they want to run back and say, we don't want to do anything with this God. We're afraid. And God says, no, you can't do that. You have to fear me, but you can't run away from me. You stay there and you offer sacrifices. And what does that mean? That's, that's our third posture as a pilgrim. It's not just perseverance of any kind, but it's perseverance of the kind that pleases God. We're commanded to please God, to offer pleasing sacrifices to God. That's what we're called to do in 12.28, also in 13, chapter 13 and verse 16. Doing good works and sharing what you have, that's a pleasing sacrifice to God. In fact, everything in chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, all those little commands that just seem like they've been thrown in there as do this and do that and do this and that's what Christians do. That's how you please God and offer acceptable sacrifices. Those are not just thrown in there to say, hey, do these good things. Those are thrown in there carefully. Those are acts of faith. Those are postures of Pleasing God when we do simple things that are mentioned there. Ah, be hospitable. Be generous. Do not love money. Trust God. Each time you do one of those actions, you're saying, I have confidence in God's promise-keeping ability. I long for that great reward. And I show my longing. I demonstrate it by the way I live, by the way I persevere while I'm still on the journey by pleasing God. And those simple actions are pleasing sacrifices that are offered to God. Although when we see Him, we fear Him. Say, whoa, He is holy. He is powerful. He is great. I am nothing, a nobody and frail, but I trust him. I long for the place that he has prepared because it's beautiful, it's joyful, there's no pain, there's no suffering there. And I do these little things each day by myself, with my family, to my neighbors, to fellow brothers and sisters. I live a certain way, pleasing God because I trust God. I look for that reward. We don't do those actions meaninglessly. Probably that's the way we may have done it. Just, that's just what Christians do. But that's an act of faith. Faith is not activity, but it's definitely action. We believe God, and then we live a certain way because we believe Him, because we long for His promises. So it's not just... Sometimes we think faith is just that mental ascent, that one day we said, yeah, this is true. I think it's true. No, it's we believe, we long for it, and then we live a certain way every single moment because it's true. That's astonishing. That's what faith does. That great reward transforms us, makes us a kind of people that lives in such a way that moment by moment we're seeking to please God through acts of 
obedience offered to him as pleasing sacrifice. We get to do that. That's a privilege. So friends, God rewards our faith. He rewards it. We seek him because he rewards our faith. His promise is ancient, is active, is an abiding land. One that he has prepared. Not one that we discovered. Not one that we create with our ideas of what a good land should be. But one that he has prepared that's perfect. A kind of land that we were created for to live in. And we, through patient perseverance, please God as a demonstration of our confidence in him. We don't throw away our confidence as another year goes by, as another sorrow comes our way. We don't say, when, Lord? How long, O Lord? We may say that, but we may only say that in prayer because we're called to offer sacrifices, not to run away. We're called to please him. And to that end, we do these acts and we pray and we ask God, help us to please you. That's our command. So let me close with prayer here from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 21. And this prayer is both confidence and comfort. Confidence because we're a people of faith, but comfort because when we're called to please God, this prayer that the author has made to those who has written this letter to, he talks about who is the one who helps people please God. So pay attention to that passage as I pray it. I pray that the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.